John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, producers and writers have all shared their stories about one of the most groundbreaking shows in TV history. Today, author of the New York Times bestseller The Daily Show, the book, Chris Smith on Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you for joining us. As you probably have gathered by now, I find it really interesting to talk about The Daily Show and its process. If you want to go back in Pop Culture Confidential's backlog, you can listen to an interview I did with Asif Manvi all about how the correspondence worked on the show, as well as my interview with the real Daily Show force, producer Miles Khan, now at Full Frontal with Samantha B. And today, I'm really happy to talk to Chris Smith, a contributing editor at New York Magazine who pretty much has written the definite history of The Daily Show. The Daily Show ran for an astonishing 17 years on Comedy Central, the first few with host Craig Kilborn, and then becoming the institution that it really became under Jon Stewart, who left in 2015. Chris Smith has spoken to pretty much everyone involved in or adjacent to The Daily Show. John Stewart, who also wrote the foreword, to correspondent Stephen Colbert, Samantha B, Louis Black, Steve Carell, John Oliver, writers, producers, and many more. We talk about John Stewart's start at the show and his difficulty working with the previous host Kilborn's writers. The triumphs, the real effects of The Daily Show had on American politics and culture, the biggest conflicts, and why Trevor Noah was chosen to succeed Stewart. Mr. Smith, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I, I need to disclose that not only is this my first podcast to Sweden, it's my first podcast of any kind. Oh, wow. So I'm uh, honored. <laughs> I guess uh, if I'm doing it wrong, please tell me. Okay. Well, there's no way you can do it wrong. Well, I'm very happy that you chose mine. <laughs> yeah, well, I was holding out, actually. Oh, yeah. you were? You had heard yeah. of, of stuff. Turned down, okay. turned down lots of others. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. And thank you for the excellent book. I'm going to start off with a pretty huge question. So it's kind of risky for the both of us. But could you try to define the importance of of the Daily Show that it's had during its 16-year run, culturally, maybe even politically? Wow, you're right. That's <laughs> a big one. Uh, you know, it, 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 I'll break it down because I think it was important on a bunch of different levels. It, in some ways, anticipated a lot of what is now commonplace on the internet. It's, it, it sounds like ancient history. Uh, it's easy to forget that The Daily Show debuted about a little more than 20 years ago, 1996, with Craig Kilborn as host. And they set the foundation in Kilborn's two and a half, three years as host of uh, a parody news broadcast with these, uh, you know, senior whatever correspondents. And then John Stewart comes in in 1999 and takes over as host, and and really establishes a a vision based in substance. You know that instead of as in the Kilborn era, essentially mocking powerless people and eccentrics, um, John wanted to punch up. And right. what's interesting is that. In retrospect, he did beyond that. He John did not have a detailed master plan, a real blueprint of what he wanted the show to be. He knew he wanted it to be 
more relevant to things he cared about uh, that made a difference in the world, and those were loosely politics and media. He and the show were given a gift, so to speak, in 2000 with the insane uh, George Bush, Al Gore presidential campaign and Florida recount. And through that period, through 2000, and then especially into 2002, 2003, as the Iraq War, the American invasion happens, what John did and what they found at the show was a way to deconstruct politics and the news. And through uh, really a pioneering use of video clip research, uh, they were able to really highlight uh, the, the hypocrisy and lies of politicians and public figures. And they did it in a way, increasingly, as the years went along, that anticipated blogging, where, mm-hmm. you know, there'll be a story or there'll be a speech or there'll be a political action, and people online will annotate it or break it down and say, you know, okay, here's really what was going on, and here's the background you need to know, and here's what they're trying to do beyond the, the spin and the posturing. And that's a, that's a commonplace form on the internet now, um, but it was something, you know, not totally alone, but in a, in a popular culture capacity, The Daily Show and Jon Stewart really established. Progressives think they know better than you do. They want to control every aspect of your life. I didn't know that that's what I wanted, but I guess I want to control every aspect of your life. As progressive, I might say, I think it's a good idea for an agency to monitor pollution. (laughs) But I guess what I really mean is, it's in the state's interest that we be allowed to put a chip in your head that tells you when you can masturbate. So that's one thing um, where they had major influence. A second, I, I would say, was just in establishing a, a tone about how the political and media game is played. There's a writer uh, quoted in the book named uh, Rob Kuttner who says, you know, if The Daily Show was about anything, it was about not just allowing people to go on TV and say whatever they wanted, to hold them account. To hold them accountable to some extent. Right, right. Um, and that really became the tone of the show in a way that, that mainstream journalism, in a lot of respects, had gotten away from, certainly TV journalism, where it was much more about show business and uh, the in campaign season, certainly, uh, you know, the us against them, the competition, the almost sporting element of it. When I've interviewed several of them during the years, they're always saying, no, 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 we're not journalists, we're not journalists. But no one was wor- working more journalistically than they were 10, yeah. 15 years ago, if you ask me. But but they really didn't want to say that. Yeah, because, and, you know, John talks about this in the book. He talked about it repeatedly over the years. At their at their core, they are comedians. They, they care, first and foremost, about the joke. But the, the format that they're working in at The Daily Show and in a variety of places that, that his sort of alumni association has, has gone on to 
it was satire and satire to be effective, to be especially funny, uh, has to be based in reality. And there was a guy who was a behind the scenes figure at the show from the beginning. He's still there now named Adam Chodakoff, who essentially was the head researcher and fact checker and has said that, you know, he wants on his tombstone uh, the jokes don't matter if the facts are wrong. Right, right. And so, yeah, in 22 minutes a, a night, four nights a week at The Daily Show, yeah, you know, you can't do really substantive investigative journalism, but you can do, or they established a, a hybrid that we haven't seen before, at least in American. A questioning. Yes, right, right. exactly. And the third way in which I think they were most influential is, you know, you, you touch on some of the folks in the, the other interviews you've done. The, you know, it's become uh, one of the women who was a writer at The Daily Show who now is the executive producer of Samantha Bee's show. Joe Miller, you know, said John Stewart essentially created a satire zone on the west side of Manhattan where you've got Stephen Colbert and John Oliver and Samantha B and Trevor Noah, who's, you know, succeeded John at The Daily Show, you know, they're all within about eight or ten blocks of one another. And there are other folks behind the camera who've gone on to other networks and other shows who are just as influential. They're everywhere, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's go back a little bit. The beginning of the book is, as you mentioned, the sort of the Craig Kilborn era, and, and, and you, you were talking about the difference between the two of them. But John really didn't work with him to work with his writers, it seems. Why was that? Well, uh, in the Kilborn years, the day-to-day the -day structure or dynamic inside the show was much different. Kilborn was almost purely a performer. He would come in and read the jokes off the teleprompter, basically. Or, and, you know, Lewis Black, who was, was and is uh, one of The Daily Show's staples, you know, said to me that there were a lot of times Lewis thought that Craig Pil Kilborn didn't even really know what the jokes were that he was reading. But uh, the bottom line there is that uh, the show's perspective was very much driven by the writing staff. They wrote the jokes. They felt like they were the ones in charge. The executive producers at the time very much, you know, enabled the writers to have that kind of power. So Kilborn leaves. He gets a job uh, in the show, the time slot after David Letterman. But John comes in, and John's a much different personality. He is a writer. He'd been a stand-up comic of uh, decent success to that point. He has a vision of where he wants the show to go. Um, and the stakes were much higher for John. He'd had uh, a short-lived talk show on MTV that had been canceled. He was in his mid-30s. If this daily show thing didn't work out, he didn't know where he was going career-wise. So John was very determined to take control. You know, some of the humor of the Kilborn years wasn't to his taste. And if this show, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, was going to succeed or fail, he felt it was going to be because he did everything he could, you know, to make it his own. So the writers who he inherited, six of them, uh, didn't like that. You know, they, they liked being able to write what they wanted and have it show up on the show every night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John 
it took to rewriting some of their material, and there were screaming matches, you know, uh, profane arguments uh, about John establishing that he was the one in charge. Ultimately, you know, five of those six folks, their contracts ended after a year or two, and they left uh, basically most of them unhappily. One writer, J.R. Havlin, who recognized that, you know, where John was taking the show was a really promising uh, new direction. He stayed. He adapted. He only left two years ago, I guess it was. What kind of writers did he want to surround himself with? Yeah, he wanted less. It's hard to define it. He, he wanted less jokey writers. He always felt like the humor was the easiest thing to do that he, you know, John certainly knew how to write punchlines, um, that he needed writers who cared about the outside world. And it's a, it's a hard subset of people to find. There's a great, what I consider a great quote in the book from Liz Winstead, who was one of the co-creators of the Daily Show uh, in 1996, who says that, you know, uh, you have to find people who can write funny, who care about politics, and can write in a voice uh, close to Jon Stewart's own. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a <laughs> narrow set of, of, of qualities or qualifications. And she felt like the first two, you know, cared about politics and had a sense of humor um, that was why, you know, the United States is in as much trouble as it is because <laughs> there are very few people who care about politics and, and retain their sense of humor about it. So, John, and it's interesting, over the years, um, he hired a lot of people from untraditional comedy backgrounds. I mean, there are folks who came through. Uh, Upright Citizens Brigade, you know, improv backgrounds, but there are almost as many who are former journalists, magazine writers, writers for CBS News, you know, who knew how the world of street journalism worked and could filter that through John's perspective. So it wasn't any one thing. And then one of the most significant developments in the life of the show that John talks about in, and other people talk about in some detail that was messy and painful was recognizing the value in diversity, you know, of, of having more women writers, having more Asian writers, having more African-American writers. Because that took a while. It sure did. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, John, at one uh, point, characterizes his attitude as, or his uh, handling of it as the triple crown of ignorance, you know, that he didn't realize how much it could help the show. He didn't realize how much uh, difficulty it would be in just breaking down the sort of feeder system that sends you uh, white guys who went to Harvard and wrote for the Lampoon, you know, that getting... Uh, agents to send you different folks was going to take a lot of pushback. And I'm spacing out now on a third leg of the triple crown of ignorance, but um, he, you know, along about the mid 2000s, in conjunction especially with Obama's run for president, realized, you know, that he, he needed to be talking about all these different racial and gender angles and 
you know, he's a white Jewish guy from New Jersey. He needed to open the place up uh, to get those voices, both as correspondents and as writers on the show. Did Craig Kilborn not want to be part of the book? or? Yes, uh, I tried my best. I uh, would love to talk to him. He declined to be interviewed. As best I can tell in my research, he has never really been interviewed, you know, only in passing. Uh, about his experience at The Daily Show. So it's it's one of my regrets that I could not get him on board. One of the great, I think it's a, um, I really understood, John has a great quote about his own comedy style where he said he wanted it pointed, purposeful, intentional, and surgical. And I, I, I really think that that sort of defines his humor, going back to what you were saying before. But one of the things that in, in the book that I, we should have sort of realized that, but John seems like such a nice guy in, in all these years, and but he really is a very, of course, ambitious and precise person. And, and if you're going to run something so successful so long, but how would you describe him as a boss? Uh, you know, certainly tough, certainly uh, in charge, um, but open-minded. You know, several people. I'm thinking of uh, Hallie Hagland, who was and is a writer on the show. I'm thinking of David Javerbaum, who was a writer on the show and eventually head writer and then eventually executive producer used in very different time periods, uh, almost exactly the same words, that to John, the best idea wins. And he didn't particularly care where it came from. Yeah, John was in charge. John made the final decisions. John did a tremendous amount of rewriting of each night's script in the hour between rehearsal and taping every night. But he also created a structure that not just allowed, but encouraged everybody from interns to cameramen to production assistants to producers to pitch ideas. You know, if they saw something in the world um, that they thought was funny or important, you know, they were highly encouraged to speak up. And... Um, so it's funny, uh, I'm thinking of a writer named Jason Ross, who was there a great long time, uh, is one of the people most responsible for the uh, segments during the 2008-2009 financial collapse that John took on Jim Cramer in a famous interview, but they also did a bunch of pieces uh, exposing, you know, the, the failures of CNBC, the financial cable network. Anyway, that's a long way of saying Jason Ross said to me that John was uh, no more of a dick as a boss than anybody else whose name is on the show. Right. <laughs> You know, that's it's a, if if it's the Daily Show with John Stewart, if it's Late Night with David Letterman, yeah, there are degrees of of kindness or nastiness. Uh, but your name's on the show. If you don't care, you know, deeply about how it's coming out, your show's probably not going to last very long. And that's what it's, he seems to care. So, I mean, you get the sort of picture that other hosts will come in and they'll grab the paper where the day, the good jokes are and they'll go do it. I mean, the, he was incredibly involved in every process of this with the staff. He's pretty obsessive. Yeah. One of the things, 
one of the things that I didn't recognize, and I wrote a lot about John over the years for New York Magazine, and you know, got to know him fairly well, and knew this was an issue. But you know, John talked to me about how essentially for 16 years he had really brutal insomnia. Um, you know, there were long stretches where he was getting two or three hours sleep a night. He quits the show in August 2015. He starts sleeping through the night, you know, it took a lot out of him. And, uh, you know, not that he's asking for anyone to feel sorry for him, but he was pretty burned out by the time he left. Right. Who would you say he feels gave him the most sort of conflict or, or the most trouble? Internally within the show? Yes. Wow. Uh... You know, uh, there were a surprising number, surprisingly small number of skirmishes over the years. Um, yeah, there was no drugs, no scandals. In yeah, that sense. I mean, <laughs> there, there, were, there were certainly people who had unhappy experiences. One of the most interesting interviews to me was with a, a guy who was a correspondent for only a short period of time, for about two years. He came in as one of the replacements to Stephen Colbert. He's, a, he's an actor, comedian named Dan Bacadal, who's gone on to do a lot of other good, fun things. Um, but his experience was really unpleasant. You know, he uh, kept, in his description, you know, waiting for the producers and John to explain to him how to do the show, you know, what they wanted of him. And he came to realize after he left that that was the wrong approach, that The Daily Show, because of the pace, because it's every night, four out of five nights a week, because they're coming in at nine o'clock every morning and trying to digest a huge amount of news material, is a place for self-starters that John really doesn't have time to go around teaching people how to do their jobs. So that was one conflict, you know, both John and Dan wish it had worked out better. The second most explosive and, and certainly much more public conflict was with Wyatt Cenac, um, who in a writer's meeting one morning objected to John's impersonation of the presidential, the Republican presidential candidate, Herman Cain. Um, you know, Wyatt, an African-American himself, uh, thought John was borderline racist in that uh, impression of Herman Cain and said so. Um, and this led to a long shouting match in uh, the writers meeting that day in John's office subsequently. Um, and I talked to, you, you asked about Craig Kilborn not being uh, quoted in the book. I talked to Wyatt at great length, uh, three and a half hours, I think, completely off the record, because I very much wanted his direct voice in the story. And, and for a lot of reasons, because it's off the record that I can't characterize, right, right. he declined also to participate. And he's got a, a lot of interesting things to say. But I do think it's fair to say that both Wyatt and John um, regret how that conversation, that confrontation happened. And John talks at great length in the book about, 
what he misunderstood was the pressures on Wyatt as the, at the time, only African-American writer on the staff to essentially represent a group of people and that John, you know, was wrong uh, to put that pressure indirectly on Wyatt and certainly wrong for, for not understanding it at the time. Yeah, that's one of the great things about John in your book, but, but I've, I've noticed that he, he's done that in other places also, that he can really go back and say, this was wrong, this happened, we did this, then we changed it, we corrected course. Um, yeah. he, he can really, he has a sense of looking back at himself and his work. I mean, maybe others, I, I mean, I didn't work there, but but it seems like he's good at that. He is, and, you know, the man's no saint. I, you know, he's, he's done things he's not proud of that I would criticize, but he does have a pretty good capacity to, to admit when he's screwed up. And I thought, you know, aside from trying to describe the blow-by-blow of the confrontation between Wyatt and John in detail that had not have been public. One of the things that I attempt to do, I hope I do in the book, is to bring in perspectives from outside the show. You know, talk to people who were either targets of The Daily Show's jokes or were guests on the show or just smart observers of the show. So I talked at length to John McCain, who was a repeat guest uh, on the show over the years. And I talked to a writer, uh, intellectual named ta Coates, who's, you know, a terrific thinker on racial issues in America and the world. And totally by coincidence, he was the guest on The Daily Show the same night that John's uh, argument with Wyatt became public knowledge. Uh, and he didn't know about it. Coates didn't know about it at the time, even though he's friendly with Wyatt. And what he said to me, and it's in the book, is that Coates feels like whenever, too often whenever somebody gets in a racially related argument, uh, they're then perceived as like child molesters. You know, everything about them is bad. And to him, to Coates, who's thought a lot about these issues, the fact that John Stewart and Wyatt had this blow up and then, you know, John has subsequently worked through it, has over the years diversified the show, shows both how difficult, you know, racial issues are day in, day out in the workplace and that John Stewart and The Daily Show struggled with them in a good way. Right, right. Let's go back a little bit before uh, and talk about the correspondence, which you, of course, yourself mentioned were a real stepping stone in, in the Daily Show history. How, how did Colbert, so how did they reach the character that they that they did? How did they come to the conclusion that this was the right way to go? Uh, you know, trial and error. And that's, again, one of the interesting things I, I discovered or, or people talk to me about in the book is as much as the finished product you, you see on TV every night, is really professional and really sharp and surgical, to use John's words, uh, and as much architecture, structure as John put in over the years, there was still a lot of room for improvisation and you know figuring it out on your own. Both Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell, who were crucial, brilliant, hilarious early correspondents, 
you know, said John kind of left them alone to figure out the correspondent character that they were playing. And in Colbert's case, um, he really modeled it on a uh, straight journalism uh, anchor man and reporter named Stone Phillips, mm-hmm. who's this very overly, you know, self-serious uh, guy. Um, and so Stephen started out imitating him and then just kind of ramped it up to absurd degrees. With more on this very unusual situation, we turn to Daily Show senior correspondent Stephen Colbert. He joins us now live from London. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. Aloha, John. Stephen, uh, this has become a huge story overnight, but no one seems to know what these allegations are about. Have you been able to learn any of the specifics? Yes, I have, John. What, what are they? Fred, I can't tell you that. You see, I'm in jolly old England, as you can tell by Big Ben behind me. Sorry, the Houses of Parliament. And slander laws here prevent me from saying anything. Believe me, I wish I could. This is a story I could really wrap my hands around. I mean, I'd love to grab this story by the hilt and work this story long and hard. Maybe teasing you with a few details. Make you beg for the story until it builds to a huge climax and explodes all over the front pages. Whew. That would be great. But the press must be discreet, John. And then, you know, the second generation of correspondents, people like Ed Helms and Rob Corddry, talk to me about how when they were first hired, you know, they just uh, hunkered down and watched hours and hours of unedited Stephen Colbert field piece (laughs) interviews to to try to imitate Colbert until they figured out their own thing. And, you know, for Cordry, who's a much more sort of blue collar, punchy, uh, you know, knock around uh, character, you know, he was uh, more sort of bombastic and and uh, confrontational than Colbert. For Ed Helms, it was, you know, more sort of a uh, cerebral, silly uh, take. Helms was interesting. I, I like talking to him a lot um, because you talk about the hybrid between journalism and comedy. Helms really admires, you know, straight journalism. He, he says it's one of the most exciting things to him to see journalism done well. And he told me, you know, one of the highlights of his Daily Show career was covering conventions. You know, every four years, the Daily Show would go to the Republican and, Na- and Democratic national conventions. And that at one Republican convention, Ed Helms found himself standing uh, at a urinal right next to Senator Lindsey Graham. And to Ed Helms, that was a big thrill. Uh, that's uh, I'm not going to go too far with that, but uh, <laughs> well, Ed, I understand. Ed, Ed meant it in a journalism context. Uh, right, somehow. right, right. I understand. Um, is there a, a anything you could pinpoint as that that the Daily Show had a real effect on politics or journalism or something in the world? Sure. Yeah, I mean a couple of things, and John got slammed uh, we were talking about journalism versus comedy earlier and you know john got slammed by opponents as saying oh you know retreating into oh i'm just a comedian which is something he he never said and never believed 
Um, but on the flip side, he was really clear about keeping the show away from being an overt advocate, you know, from saying for this guy or take up this side of an issue. A, because he thought it wasn't particularly funny, and B, because it would sacrifice some of the show's credibility. Now, there are two major, major exceptions to that policy. Um, the first is that John cares very deeply about uh, issues related to uh, veterans, American mm -hmm. veterans. Um, and Miles Kahn, who I can't remember if he talked to you about this, one of the really terrific pieces that he and Samantha B did together was sort of a mock uh, movie detective story, you know, trying to locate the benefits for this one wounded Iraq war veteran. It all began with the story of Iraq army veteran Eugene Manning. Tell me everything you know. Well, I was in Iraq in 2005. I was hit by an IED. I put in VA medical claims four times and they've lost them three out of four times. It's your most recent claim. How long has that been in progress? Uh, about 330 days. So fucked up. Yeah. The woman at the VA, she told my wife that the VA forms are in a pile, a physical pile. So while some companies use computers, the VA uses pile-based technology. That's what she said. I'm going to help you. And that was a terrific, moving, funny piece. It got the VA to change, the, the American Veterans Association, or excuse me, Veterans Administration here, to change some of the rules about who qualified for medical care and, you know, how they could access medical care. So that was one thing. And John returned repeatedly to how screwed up the bureaucracy was in its treatment of, of former soldiers. The second is uh, in his advocacy for health benefits for first responders to this uh, September 11th terrorist attacks. You know, John really took that up uh, on two occasions in 2010 when the benefits were first working their way through Congress. And then again in 2015 um, when they were expiring and the Republicans were stalling and filibustering and refusing to pay. John did uh, a remarkable couple of pieces after he actually left as Daily Show host, shaming congressmen and getting them to change sides and vote for that health care uh, money. It's now permanent. There are now thousands of first responders and their families who are getting medical care, not simply because of John Stewart. There were a lot of people over the decade who did the groundwork, but John helped at a crucial moment, uh, move it into reality. About Trevor Noah, um, he was not one of the first ideas that they had for his replacement. Who, who were some of those? That's that's really interesting, uh, and it's, it's something I, the book talks about in detail for the first time. You know, John, in 2012, was coming to the end of a contract with Comedy Central, and getting a little restless, getting a little tired of the grind, wanted to go and make a movie. Um, and that became a really uh, tough bargaining point. Uh, they didn't want to let him go off and do the movie. Ultimately, he did. And during the summer when John was gone, John Oliver was guest host and did brilliantly. 
And part of, part of John Stewart's thinking in putting John Oliver behind the desk at The Daily Show was that he was teeing up John Oliver to succeed him um, when John Stewart eventually left, which John Stewart knew was not going to be too far down the road. Comedy Central, uh, you know, they wanted to be in charge of picking a replacement. They didn't want to pay John Oliver the money that he thought he would be due to be a daily show host, and they let him get away. Mm-hmm. And John Oliver's gone on to great success at HBO. So when John Stewart does officially, you know, think or decides that he's leaving the Daily Show, the scramble is on to fire to find a replacement. You know, John suggested some folks, mostly internally, Wyatt Cenac among them. Mm-hmm. Uh, John uh, thought Amy Schumer would be a terrific replacement as Daily Show host. You know, unfortunately, Amy. Amy's career, her own career, was taking off at exactly the wrong time for The Daily Show. You know, she was having tremendous success, so wasn't interested in The Daily Show. Uh, um, Folks at Comedy Central, you know, reached out to Louis C.K. and Chris Rock and uh, Amy Poehler. You know, none of whom John thought were realistically going to be interested and who declined. Um, John thinks Trevor's terrific. You know, John had hired Trevor as a correspondent on the show uh, about a year earlier. John had seen a clip of Trevor on David Letterman and watched about 30 seconds of it and said, wow, that guy could do my job someday. And uh, now he is. Mm-hmm. How, how, would, how have people taken to him? To Trevor? Yeah, I mean, critics and... and- it's been a bumpy first year, you know. Uh, it, it was going to be hard for whoever took over after John. Uh, the ratings were down. The critics were rough on him. Uh, Trevor talked to me. It's you know, it's in the book about how even though he knew hosting a Daily Show was a hard job until he actually was doing it, he didn't realize how hard a job it was. Um, so he spent the first year trying to change the show a bit. Uh, he's really gotten some traction in the past month or so with the election of Trump as president. Uh, it's given Noah, you know, genuine anger to this country is going to be, you know, uh, in, the guy in charge of this country is going to be, you know, uh, someone who's come out of this sort of racist campaign. In some ways, it's metaphorically or poetically fitting that uh, as Trump becomes president, uh, the host of The Daily Show is a guy who grew up under apartheid, you know, and it's, it's given uh, Trevor a much sharper angle. And he's done a bunch of good shows in the past month or so. I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm ready for 2016 to end. I am so done with this year. This was honestly one of the years we can remember. And on top of that, it was a leap year, so there was an extra day of <laughs> To be honest, only an asshole would be thankful for a year like this. President-elect Donald Trump kicking off his thank you tour, visiting the key battleground states that helped secure his win against Hillary Clinton. Of course, the worst year for us is the best year for Trump. You know, when we lose, he wins. It's like he owns one of those cleaning companies that only cleans up crime scenes. It's like, oh boy, triple homicide, cha-ching! <laughs> 
ironically, maybe that's what he needed, sort of, to get some real feeling and anger. Yeah, into, into yeah. The- it brings me back to something that's in the book that a guy named Steve Bodo, who uh, came out of a journalism background, was hired in 2003 at The Daily Show, and was foundering around as a writer. He talks to me about how he thinks he was going to get fired. Ultimately, he became head writer. He's now executive producer under Trevor Noah. But the thing, the thing that Steve says saved his career as a writer at The Daily Show is that the United States uh, invaded Iraq and that Steve had a lot of ideas about jokes and bits that could be done about the American invasion of Iraq. And so he says, you know, the Iraq invasion was the best thing that happened to my career. And that's true at The Daily Show. A lot of times, you know, bad for the world, good for The Daily Show. Um, And so uh, let's just hope the next four years aren't too bad for the world. And Noah just did that really great interview with, what's her name, Tommy... Right, right. That was yeah. Or racist Barbie, as she's sometimes known. Okay, well then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and finally, John, I keep reading and 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 I've heard him say in a few interviews, oh, he does not miss that he sat out this election, um, the whole Trump election. Do do you believe him? Yeah, that's totally true. It is. Yeah, yeah. As a performer, he'd said everything he had to say. He he was done after 16 years. Um, He really couldn't stomach the idea of going through another campaign. You know, the metaphor he he uses, he said, you know, if uh, you're a bartender and you're on vacation and, you know, somebody calls you up and says, oh, you know, a, a, a busload of uh, fraternity guys just showed up at the bar. Don't you really wish you were back here working? <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> Vacation or retirement, semi-retirement, is pretty good. You know, that John's having fun with his family and being relaxed. As a civilian, yes, it's deeply painful to him what's gone on in American politics over the past year. Not, you know, not that he didn't have a lot of disagreements with Hillary Clinton, but, you know, the rise of Trump, who, uh, you know, John made a ton of jokes about over the years, is, is something that he recognizes is is a bad thing. Okay, well, I hope I can, I can get back to you again, because this was fun. Thank you so much. The book is excellent. And thank you for taking your time to talking on your first podcast. You made it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chris Smith. The book is The Daily Show, The Book, a really great stocking stuffer this year, if you're looking for that. And with that, I'd like to wish all our listeners happy holidays, and thank you so much for listening. We are going to be back right after the new year, and we have some really, really huge shows coming right up. Among them, the legend Roger Corman, as well as what will surely be the best picture and best director this year at the Oscars, director Damien Chazelle of La La Land is going to be on Pop Culture Confidential, so please stay tuned. And for now, go to Pop Culture Confidential confidential.com where you can listen to new shows or go back to the old ones tweet to us at pod pop culture this show was edited by tom hansen theme music by carl boy and produced by renee witterstedt and myself i'm christina jörling biro thank you so much for listening and happy holidays
Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.